Welcome to episode 29 of Blue Jays Happy Hour Live. I'm Nick Ashbourne, joined as always by Andrew Stoughton. We are coming to you after a very eventful win for the Toronto Blue Jays. Stoughton, I think this one is kind of a Vladdy episode, is it not? I think it kind of has to be, yeah. It uh, it almost was going to be one in a weird, bad way, but uh, <laughs> then he like, flicked his wrists and hit a 115-mile-an-hour home run. Yeah, I mean, there's there's that which bears uh, some discussion for sure. I mean, the the, the too, yeah, yeah, the, the stretch was outstanding. You know, throughout the year, we kept hearing, you know, Vladdy's really improving on defense. He's improving on defense, and I think earlier in the year, from the eye test, I'm not sure if I bought that I was seeing a totally different player. But over time, you know, both the defensive metrics and some of these plays he's making. Uh, I mean, he's really turned me into a believer in, in what his defense can be because I think that he may have gotten maybe a little bit too much praise too soon early on when he was trying it because it was like, wow, he's he doesn't have much experience, but he's doing it. Uh, and I think that maybe a few people ended up getting convinced that he was pretty good before he was actually pretty good. But now uh, he seems to be rather good at this first base business. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, we saw another good stretch right at the end of the game. Uh, you know, he's, he's saved Bo Bichette some errors, uh, I would say this season, you know, he does a really nice job of scooping balls out of the dirt. Um, you know, we've said it's been a thing for, for two decades now that first base defense doesn't really matter all that much or isn't, isn't a huge thing, but, uh, but you're also out there searching for wherever you can find marginal value and, and maybe it's not marginal. Uh, maybe that was, uh, a little misguided thinking that it was, you know, uh, that it didn't matter at all. I think there's, you know, there's some daylight between it doesn't matter at all and, uh, and uh, you know, lauding Mark Grace for, for 20 years of, uh, you know, just standing next to the baseball, next to the bag and catching the ball. Uh, but yeah, Vladdy's been really good. It's, uh, you know, I, 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 I hesitate to think that, that they were correct on the broadcast. Talk. I think it was Matt Chapman was saying he's going to win gold gloves at some point, which, you know, sometimes that does happen because, uh, you know, sluggers just get it like uh, just by default. But uh, maybe I don't know. He plays really good first base. Yeah, I mean, if Rafael Palmero can win that one when he was a DH, anything is possible. I, I suppose. I, I think I think voters are a little more savvy at this point. But a uh, little more savvy at this point. Yeah, I think that it's. Yeah, I wouldn't rule him in as oh he's a he's a shoe in to even be a finalist necessarily. But you know the metrics are there, and he is. You know, a lot of the guys who play first base are older guys because they end up kind of making their way there over time. He's a little bit bendier than them, for lack of a better word. <laughs> yeah. um, that results in some highlights that may catch some people's attention in the Twitterverse. So I wouldn't be absolutely shocked if at some point he gets a, a finals nod. To be honest, I don't like I'm trying to think of like, oh, well, who do I think will actually win? And uh, like you said, first base defense isn't that thing that's consistently on your radar. So uh, I, could, I can't give you a good alternative of who exactly should win AL Gold Glove. But I do know that that's not what people came here to listen to is a discussion of who will win AL Gold Glove. We got to pivot back to that home run because it was the true Vladimir Guerrero Jr. classic, like what he is known for, what he does more than anyone else, which is hit these massive you know these lasers that get out in a second and we know that Stan does a little bit of it but Vladdy does it the most and it was fun to watch today in the context of the Teoscar Hernandez home run which was truly 
a moonshot that the camera couldn't even track. Like it, it was unclear if that ball was out of the park or in the third deck or where it was. And then the Vladdy one, I don't know if you <laughs> if you could have created a graphic where you saw them both on screen. Like the Vladdy one would have been out while the tail one was still hanging over the outfield waiting to come down. It was quite the contrast. It yeah, it absolutely was. Um, you know, I saw you tweeting about uh, you know what we should call a, a Vladdy. Uh, with the launch angle and the the exit velocity, I mean, it is it's something we haven't seen. I would say not enough this year, uh, though. You know, we still got a couple months left, plenty of time for Vlad to actually get hot. I, I feel he has like a fifteen home run month in him, probably at some point. That would that would be real nice to see. Um, you know, he grounded out uh, with the bases loaded earlier in the game, and that was like really during the. Speaking of contrast, the contrast between the first half of the game and the second half was pretty wild. Um, and yeah, I mean, Tay Oscar's, we'd be probably be talking about Tay Oscar's home run. I mean, I guess we are now as well, but, but that would be more of a focal point had the game, you know, taken a different path because that was, uh, that was quite the shot. Uh, I love Tay Oscar wearing the black shoes and, and kind of looking like Joe Carter with the tight pants out there. It always, it gives, it gives me flashbacks like that a little bit, or maybe a Glenn Allen Hill or, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, you know, you just don't see the you don't see the pants shoot combo like that like he's doing right now uh, these days. But yeah, Vladdy, um, what can you say? That is that that's the that's that one with that sound and that like the the no doubter that he can hit that only he can hit, which is uh, um, was real welcome was was just really nice. And I, I know that Dan and Pat sort of marveled about you know they didn't have a hit until two outs in the fifth inning and then ended up with thirteen or whatever it was. Um, but like, yeah, that was glad too. Like the, the whole thing was, uh, uh, turned from a real nail biter into, uh, into a ball game I found enjoyable to watch. Yeah. And in terms <laughs> of that, that entertainment value, we have talked in the past about sort of the nature of baseball and the way it shifted. And I know that this year we have actually seen a little bit of a pullback on those three true outcomes, but there is that notion that, uh, you know, a home run isn't actually necessarily the most fun thing to watch, even though it's the most consequential play that can happen. And this game was an interesting example to me of times when you get home runs that, you know, they're not all made the same, right? And these ones were both kind of amazing to marvel at. And I would rather see home runs like this than, you know, see them string together three bloop singles in a row. And in the eighth inning, that was what happened at the beginning of the inning, right? They had a rally of kind of dubious hits where they got a little bit of the BABIP gods on their side and whatnot. And, you know, the home run rally killers thing used to be an old joke. But uh, this was a game that was a nice example of the fact that, like, you can have home runs and they can also give that entertainment value, too, because those two were crazy. But, they, you know, they did they strung together all those hits, ended up with 13 hits. A lot of them weren't the best. I mean, Whit Merrifield had a multi-hit day. Neither of those were super impressive. We're going to definitely drill down on Wit uh, because he's a character of some interest in Blue Jays land over the last couple of days, to be certain. I thought it was kind of funny that he ended up with three strikeouts today. That's something he's only done. Uh, this is the second time this year he's had three or more strikeouts. Like the whole thing is that he doesn't strike out. And his first two at-bats were strikeouts as well. Uh, and it just felt like a little bit of a storm cloud for Witt's debut. He ends up with the two hits, you know, neither of them are uh, particularly sexy, but they were effective and they were important uh, at the end of the day. But a bit of a weird debut for Witt with all the discussion that went around around it uh, in the days prior, which you covered extensively in your 
Atkins transcriptions, which, uh, you know, you do the Lord's work on that because I don't think <laughs> anyone who's been involved with writing in any way, shape or form knows that transcribing is not a fun task. Yeah, you know what? I'm not. I, I, for some reason, transcribe. I'm okay with transcribing. I, I transcribe all right. I, I, the the website O Transcribe, free transcription site. You pop the MP3 in there. Your escape is your pause. Your pause uh, start really uh, really makes it easy. Kind of don't hate it. Uh, but yeah, everybody. It still sucks, and everybody hates it. Uh, but yeah, uh, the the Merrifield thing. I think you know we did see the we see the we saw the flash speed on the base paths, which was really uh, uh, a bit of a, a bit of excitement there, and that he looked completely competent in center field, which I think is really important because obviously uh, we're probably going to see a lot of him out there. Uh, it, feel, it feels like you know uh, they're just resigned to George Springer being like this for the rest of the year and, and hoping that it gets a little bit better. But I, I don't know how much you know. I think we'll see him in center, but but having Merrifield out there and looking competent is real nice. Uh, especially when Ron Altapia is also there, who is, uh, uh, less competent defensively, but has, has done a nice job with the bat. But yeah, yeah, I think the Merrifield thing was, uh, was a bit absurd. I mean, it was so, you can't say it's absurd because they can't say anything. And it, uh, man, I've been wrong about too much stuff lately. <laughs> so it was tough sticking my neck out a bit, but it was like, they just, they clearly can't say it. And, uh, you know, looking into, and it's a, like credit to, uh, I think it's Guzman's Jerry Curl on Twitter, who was, uh, who, who was banging this drum for a while, which is that it's like a HIPAA violation for, for an employer, you know, in the United States, obviously the Jays are a Canadian team, but it's kind of the, op- the MLB operates under American law. The, the, uh, the union is based in the states. The league is based. In, you know, American law is the, the what is applicable, I believe. Here, I'm not a lawyer. Anybody who is a lawyer is going to be noticing that immediately. But the the law does not allow teams to or to to uh, disclose medical information other than what is collectively bargained and what's in the uniform player contract, which is you know playing related injuries and injury timelines and injury like surgery surgical procedures or whatever that they get. That's basically it. So they just, they couldn't, they couldn't say that. And as I wrote also, you know, the Merrifield had, uh, had a weird, a weird time in Kansas city after, uh, after he made his comments that, yeah, well, if I was on a contender, yeah, maybe I'll get the vaccine then. But for the, for these chumps, no, no dice. <laughs> so he kind of like, he kind of needed to, to walk that back himself and, and be the guy and not just sort of hide behind whatever Ross Atkinson. So I completely understand why they did what they did. And uh, it, it, it was, it was, the communication was odd. I mean, if the HIPAA stuff and the, the, the legal stuff was, you know, if that was part of the, a part of it, which I think it was, couldn't have hurt to just be like, well, we can't talk about that, but I, but maybe that would have seemed too negative and made it. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if the messaging was great here, um, but it doesn't matter. He got it, and clearly they wouldn't have done it. I think Atkins made a really interesting point in one of the interviews that I transcribed, which was about, you know, we've dealt with this before, which is, you know, we, like, like Merrifield is a public one because he was on the restricted list when the Royals came to Toronto, but the Blue Jays have made acquisitions for almost a calendar year with these, you know, with knowledge of these rules uh, and with the same, you know, tampering rules in place like where they couldn't just like flat out ask a player or ask the player's agent of when he's employed by another team uh and some and, and have managed to work around it and, I, they, and and as somebody pointed out they've also had their own players who they've had to you know deal with the delicate vaccine issue uh so yeah probably a little more trust of of them knowing what the hell they're doing was was warranted there 
but I don't know if they did themselves any favors by uh, by just leaving it so open and leaving everybody hanging and, and, and having to trust them. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the John Schneider quote was the weirdest one, where it's like nothing has changed on that front. And again, like you said, it's easy to understand all this stuff. Even beyond the legal ramifications from a PR perspective, especially with Maryfield coming from that odd situation in Kansas City, not ideal when your GM says they're disgusted with you. <laughs> um, just as a general, you know, your manager doesn't even have to be a baseball thing, just your boss. Um, not great. Yeah. <laughs> so they give him the opportunity to be the one who's the hero. And like, you know, clearly Merrifield, you know, since then has not really said a ton about it. I think they just kind of want to put it behind them. My favorite quote from the whole thing though, was Atkins saying he's exceptionally excited to be a part of this. And he knows what it means to play in Toronto. Uh, yeah. because that felt like the clearest thing you could possibly, like it was the, is the closest you could cut to the truth without saying the truth of the matter. Yes. Um, so like, I thought did, that was like, well. Did, 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 did people think he meant like, oh, he knows how special it is? Like, yeah, he knows he's representing a whole country and <laughs> like that we've got great TV ratings. No, like he, yeah, I thought that was great. Like I, I think that it's the sort of thing where if you could get a, um, like a candid moment with Ross Atkins, I think he would have some funny things to say about that because it has been a bit of a weird media tour for him after the deadline and also you know after a deadline and we we discussed it in real time that people were kind of underwhelmed by so i think he was already a little bit on the back foot and then this is the thing that he's got to deal with uh is this but i think we're all lucky to have it all behind us now we have whit merrifield the player one thing that is important about him is that is playing center field like you said it was good to see that today and the speed in real time I know we have access to sprint speed and stuff like that, but scouting the box score sometimes doesn't tell you the whole story. Like this year, he's only played six games in center field so I, with Kansas City. So if I see that and I see a guy who's 33, um, that makes me concerned that maybe he's not as trustworthy there anymore. But I, I mean, it's hard to say clearly that's not the case based on one game, but it does seem to be less the case than that box score scouting would tell you. Yeah, I think so. 40 stolen bases last year. I mean, I think this, the, the wheels are still there. You can see some of that. I see also we've got, uh, we've got Oz Rob on the line here. Let's, uh, let's talk to our friend who's, uh, who's called before. And everybody else, feel free to call. Feel free to ask us dumb shit or, uh, or, or smart shit. As, if I, you've as got I'm it. sure Rob's about to ask. <laughs> good to hear from you, man. How are you? Yeah, good. I, I think this is working this time, is it? It is. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the word exceptionally there because Ross Atkins <laughs> seems to be in love with that word. I, I really like Ross Atkins, but he just you think he he know, he would know how he comes across sometimes as being a bit robotic. But anyway, that's not my question. Um, this is totally unrelated to the game or anything like that, but I did mention it in the chat in um, in your blog. Oh, yeah. What's going on with Bo Bichette and stolen bases? Like last year, he had this phenomenal record of 25 stolen bases with only being caught stealing once. And this year, I don't know whether he tried tonight, but he's 7-7. Seven and seven. And that seems to me to be a pretty stark difference. And I just wondered if if anyone had thought about that or noticed that or had any potential explanations. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I noticed it when you asked the question on the blog. <laughs> but I hadn't thought about it a whole lot before that. Um, it's just It's been such a weird year for him. He was, I mean, he was a guy who tonight... Uh, it was real nice to see, you know, he hit a ball uh, late in the game in the ninth inning that ate up the third baseman. He had a couple doubles. 
not of the uh, of the of the twins just gifting them variety, which was good. But the stolen base thing, I, I don't I don't have a ton of thoughts on it. Uh, that seems bad. I know that he's in a, po- a position in the batting order where it's like, you, yeah, you shouldn't really be stealing. And they they mentioned that on the broadcast. Dan and Tabby were talking about with respect to Merrifield, you know, hitting lower in the order. Yeah, go ahead and steal. Like you don't want to get caught stealing with Vladdy at the plate. So um, I, I, I don't know, but obviously he has been doing that. So I don't know what to say about it. It's weird because then you look at Springer and I, I don't know what his – I think he's got like 10 stolen bases and only been caught once. So he's doing it right. But, uh, you know, I don't know. It's just a stark difference. I, I found maybe somebody could look into it in a bit deeper depth. I don't know. Yeah. Nick, um, you yeah. Any, any well, I mean, on? they – you know, from the raw sprint speed numbers, he's down a little bit this year. Last year is 74th percentile. This year he's 54th. So that's a pretty significant difference. Again, it's not 54th, like he – It's Bo Bichette, middle of the pack sprint speed. It's not like he got old all of a sudden, right? Like, and it's not like he's been injured in a way that we know about. We do know he's the type of guy who really prioritizes playing every day. So it's possible that there have been things that he's been working through. I mean, last would year, his, you know, would his injury make him uh, swing away at zero and two all the time? Well, yeah, that's a different. That's <laughs> no, that's a different type of situ- situation. I mean, I think you know the twenty-five and one is not a fair thing to sort of compare against, just because that's so anomalous. Like he hasn't, you know, early in his MLB career, he struggled to steal bases, even though he'd done it in the minors, like in twenty nineteen and twenty twenty. Yeah. He didn't really get much going in that way. So. I don't know. I mean, seven and seven is pretty bad. And he's been picked off a couple of times, too, that isn't necessarily reflected in those numbers as well. So it, it's really hard to say, but the sprint seed has definitely got to be part of that. But I, I just don't think you'd expect him to be an amazing base stealer going forward, even last year with the 74th percentile. Like, that's good, but that's not, oh, this guy's an automatic base stealing threat good. You know, that's kind of like the Randall Grichuk, Matt Chapman zone. Um, which means you've got to be actually good at the craft of base stealing. And other than last year, for most of his career and in his minor league career, he he hasn't proven that he's amazing at that. So, yeah, I think we should probably lower expectations a little bit, but it, it can't possibly be this bad going forward. Yeah, okay. I, I, I thanks, that's right. You got anything else, Rob? Yeah, I just wanted to make one comment about the trade deadline stuff. I mean, I think we all wanted one of the sexier names out there. We didn't get it, but I wasn't... I always had an inkling that a lot of the big names out there weren't quite the best fits for us or or they did have some sort of red flag. Like I never really was comfortable with the idea of getting Montas because um, anyone with shoulder injuries or barking shoulders is a bit of a red flag. I think we did okay. And, and if, if you think about those pitchers, they're only going to pitch for you once every five days anyway. And if we face them in the playoffs, we might face them once. I think we did fine. I don't know. Maybe I'm in the minority, but I'm, I'm happy with what we did. That's yeah. that's all. Yeah. Thank you so much for your call, Rob. I, I am, uh, I'm with you too. I think it was fine. I think that, you know, I mean, I saw the, well, because I transcribed the Atkins stuff, I saw the, the poll that, that they did, the, the Tim and Sid show did, or sorry, the Tim and Friends show, uh, the Godspeed to Sid and Breakfast TV, uh, my old friend. Uh, who actually I worked with and is a lovely guy. Uh, just has terrible takes. Anyway, uh, yeah, a lot of people were apparently disappointed. I think you got that vibe off Twitter. Uh, I mean, we kind of talked about. I mean, when we when we talked about it last, it was just so fresh. I was my mind was was racing, and uh, I wasn't sure what to make of any of it. Um, I was a little downcast about it. I was. I, I think it's it's still fair to say that it is an underwhelming. Uh, 
hall if like in a vacuum, but I think you completely understand why they did what they did and, and don't feel bad about where they are and how they've you know filled in gaps and raised the floor um, and all that stuff. But yeah, it's uh, it, it is what we talked about before. You know, it's uh, it, it, it's not super super sexy. Yeah, this is a really good team. You know, the fact that their deadline wasn't the flashiest does not mean they're not going to go on a big playoff run. Like That's absolutely a possibility for these guys. Uh, I think the front office was probably not 100% comfortable pushing all those chips into the middle if they didn't feel like you know getting that division win and getting that buy wasn't in the cards because that's when you get to feel a little bit more comfortable saying we're putting it all behind this because you're not beholden to a three-game series that can really go i you know anyway regardless of how good your team is like the you know the padres look incredible they could easily be swept out of the wild card round just because that's the way baseball works i yeah i at the time i think i was sort of like this is fine and i think that's about how i feel now like i you know i i like some of the players they got i know anthony bass didn't look great in his re blue jays debut or whatever you want to call that um but i i like pop i think he's an interesting talent Mitch White is, you know, he's got utility and he's been, you know, I think more successful as a starter than people give him credit for. Merrifield has this use of playing some center field for them. So, yeah, I, I think it, it's tough to look at that and say, wow, I'm thrilled. This made me more fired up about the Blue Jays than I've ever been before. But I don't think it's fair to say, oh, because of this, now I'm down on this team suddenly. I think however you felt about the Blue Jays going in, that's approximately how you should feel coming out. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's fair, and I think that uh, I felt going in, the guys who are already here need to be a bit better, and uh, and I think that that would go a long way to making any weird feelings about this trade deadline go away. Uh, also, I keep calling it an unsexy trade deadline, and yet Mitch White. I mean, come on, that uh, that is not the right word to describe that man. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, Grichik is gone, so there's you know, there's been a void. There's a handsomeness handsomeness void on the team in general. I think some people would take offense to me saying that, but you know not all the guys I can think of like twenty six of them probably, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I don't think they listen. I don't think we have any players with burners who listen. If you do, absolutely uh, let us know. We'll have you on any time and I will recant the statement about you not being handsome. <laughs> especially, especially if you're Alejandro Kirk. Um, another thing that sort of come out of the deadline in the immediate aftermath that I wouldn't say it went under the radar per se, but it was a little bit uh, of a surprise was to see Ross Stripling suddenly hit the IL and none of us thought that there was an issue with him. And I think it did reframe the way some people felt on the deadline because they thought, wow, Stripling, who's been so good, is down and now – you know, we don't have the starting depth with Castillo gone and we didn't trade for a great starter. This is, you know, this is undoubtedly a concern because, again, Stripling has been so successful for the Blue Jays this season. But with White there to backfill, um, yeah, I, I think the panic level for this has to be relatively low. I, uh, yes, I think so as well. I mean, the Castillo thing, a lot of people were enamored of Castillo. He was a bit of the showcased guy i think maybe uh, more than we realized that he he definitely you know he definitely filled a need and it was definitely like a, a a very nice thing that he was able to come in and give them some good innings and had you know was promoted from double a and had had really nice numbers in buffalo and i i think sort of 
played his way into being a, the kind of trade ship that can get you a, a Whit Merrifield, which uh, I was probably a little too down on before. I mean, I think we can, we can, or we already have talked about that there are some some attributes to Wit that are uh, that are, are better than uh, than maybe maybe certain folks like myself were giving him credit for. Um, so yeah, that that is a weird one, and I can spoke about it in the in, in one of the interviews. I can never, I can't tell which, what the hell one is which, uh, but sort of spoke about the timeline and said that like, and, and that's the thing too is that we kind of don't realize like how long these things take and what the timeline deadline day is. He was like, you know, we learned about an hour or two before the deadline that Stripling was going to go on the IL. The the white trade was already completed at that point, but they were just doing medical stuff. Like we didn't hear about the white trade until you know six o'clock. And he's saying that it was already done by, you know, four thirty or something like that, uh, and that it didn't really affect what they were doing. And so, uh, I, they, they went in with their eyes open, which I think speaks, you know, to what they think the seriousness of the stripling injury is. Uh, hopefully, I know he got hurt last year and then came back and was just not the same because he had that nice little run, which is kind of a uh, a bit of a concern. I think maybe an even bigger concern is that they're they're like, oh yeah, two starts from Kikuchi looks like he's uh, nice and consistent now, and, and that's going to be fine. Because uh, if that goes sideways again, uh, like it's it's looked okay. I don't know that the second start looked uh, looked quite as good as the first, but uh, that that will that will be a thing because now you don't have your Castillo, and I don't know that that was necessary. I mean, I guess when Stripling comes back, I mean it's only a couple weeks that you have to worry about it. They're not worried about it. Uh, and it's their jobs are on the line, so maybe we shouldn't make too much of it. Uh, but it does feel like there's uh, there's not a lot going on uh, beyond Mitch White, and and that's you know that could be an issue at some point. Yeah, I mean, all of a sudden Kikuchi doesn't, uh, or rather, he does have a leash. Like before, you could have a scenario where you put in Stripling. Uh, and White, or you shuffle Kikuchi around, make up another injury, put him in the bullpen if he's truly, um, you know, if he's truly struggling like he was early in the season. Now you've got to give him a little bit of rope here and let him go. I, I do think that that one start looked pretty good. Like you said, the second one, not so much. But, you know, 10 strikeouts against two walks in his starts, you know, nine innings only. Again, that's not ideal. But that is a step forward when he's throwing literally throwing strikes like that was a huge problem for him just getting to that point like that's what you have to build off of whether he can build off of that and put together you know outings where he's consistently giving you hopefully five innings and allowing you know i'd take three or fewer runs even that's not a great outing necessarily like if he's consistently doing that with this offense that's really not the end of the world for a fifth starter, but he's his floor has just been so low. That's the issue with him. Is like it's not just that he's mediocre when he's off. When he's off, he is off, and he's been terrible. So now you have to live with that for a couple of weeks. But I I've been you know higher on him for a lot of the time than a lot of people, and I understand why people are have fallen off the bandwagon with him because he has not shown you a good reason to believe that. Uh, he's going to be effective, but I continue to believe that there is something there. And the idea of giving him a little bit more room to figure things out and, you know, his next start looks looks like it's against Baltimore, uh, you know, who are a real baseball team now. Um, I, I don't actually hate that too much. I'm not saying like, oh, you know, it's great for them when Ross Stripling get injured, got injured. Obviously, that's a negative. He's been great. But I don't hate the idea of having to lean on Kikuchi for one of these spots um, 
as much as I think some other people would. Yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. It's just it's tough, man. He's. I mean, it's just it's, it, it, we've seen the depths. <laughs> they're they're pretty dark. Um, but yeah, I, I, you're not wrong that especially you know when he comes back. Uh, you know, you can go, you can go to, you can have White in the bullpen as your swing man who can come in. And if it does go badly, once Springer's healthy and then they have all three of them, White can come and pitch some innings, you know, to, to clean up a Kikuchi mess. And then they also have, you know, just a little more length in the bullpen, uh, quite, quite a bit, really, when you consider, you know, the size of, you know, the, like a quarter of the bullpen is now, uh, is now Bass and Pop, which is, uh, which means it's not Banda and Beasley. Uh, which means that, you know, uh, Trevor Richards and David Phelps are knocked back down a bit, which is uh, where you want to be, I think. Uh, and, and Phelps has been okay. Uh, not as good as you would hope, and I think maybe not as much, you know, not hasn't been as good lately. Richards has obviously been, you know, either striking guys out or giving up home runs, which is terrible. Uh, but that's a guy, and I said like earlier in the season, that's a guy that if he had been made available on waivers from another team, we would be like, oh, go get that guy. Like that guy could strike people out. Some of all this, uh, some of these other numbers, that must just be noise of some kind, which doesn't feel like it watching him. But um, but yeah, the collective uh, lift of the bullpen, even if you know you're not a bass person, which I think you know a lot of uh, I, I'll give people enough credit and not like scold anyone for. For like like uh, not bash a straw man for being like oh I hope nobody saw one home run and, and decided Anthony Bass is bad now second home run of the year I think uh, you know he's threw some good sliders the numbers all hold up uh, what happened there at the end of the game whatever um, and uh, yeah it's uh, it is a much better situation and and it just it's just a matter of degree I guess. Yeah, and it is worth noting that the bullpen has been significantly better recently, like even prior to these two guys coming aboard. Over the last 30 games coming into tonight's action, so not counting tonight's action, they had the best bullpen ERA in the majors at 224. Now, that, and that's a pretty surprising number. The, the FIP on that is 431, so you're getting a little bit of luck there. But they also are a bullpen of contact guys as opposed to strikeout guys, so they're... ERA in theory should outpace the FIP, not by that much uh, necessarily, but there has been a level of competence with this group over the last little bit that is easy to fly under the radar just because, you know, they don't, other than Romano, they don't really have big stars in the bullpen. We're so used to that group over the last sort of year and a half being a disappointment that when they perform well, um, we tend not to put the you know, hold that up as being super significant. And I'm not sure I do. I'm not saying that this group is suddenly great, but they, you can't deny that they've done well recently. Their job is to keep runs off the board and they have kept runs off the board for the last month or so. Plus they have a couple of reinforcements that help the talent level. And yes, you know, you could make a good argument. That the blue Jays should have brought in more of that do or die high leverage uh, reliever, that would be another ace down there to put alongside Romano. But this group feels a lot different than it did, you know, a month ago, a month and a half ago. I think that's true. And I think they did bring in kind of that guy in Garcia, who also, as I noted in my piece, uh, it's Yumi. It's not, it's not Jimmy. Uh, somewhere along the line, baseball references pronunciation guide has changed. I don't know. If that, that must have come from the Jays. I don't know the, the ins and outs, outs of it. Uh, but that was very noticeable. Ross Atkins calling him Yumi, uh, which I suppose is his name, and we will have to uh, we'll I mean, have to reorient ourselves and use it now going forward. 
It's more fun, undoubtedly. Absolutely. Oh man, I've been. I'm on board the whole time. I was like, oh, in my brain, it's it's always been that. Yeah, it was a shame to uh, to to have it be Jimmy, but now we're back. <laughs> now we're back. Here we are. That's, that's, um, that's really a tur- turning point of the season. I feel. Yeah. Before we get out of here, a little bit more of a somber tone since we last spoke. Um, Vin Scully passed away. You know, we are not the ones best equipped to eulogize him at the same time. You know, a massive figure in baseball history. It was amazing to see all the statistics people had about what percentage. I think he called 4% of all MLB games, including games that happened before the advent of television and radio or something like that. Before I, I don't know the exact stat where it was. Um, you know, he called 18 no-hitters and three perfect games. We know you know, the massive shadow he cast over the game and how incredible he was at, at his job in a literal sense. It wasn't just someone who stuck around forever. It's easy to get nostalgic about someone who was a part of your life for an extended period of time and think, oh, well, longevity means that someone is a legend. And he was more than that. He was someone who was unbelievable at what he did, you know, even very late in his career. He didn't become the crotchety old man. Uh, he was fantastic until the end. So before we get out of here, uh, I mean, I have some thoughts on Scully, but I wanted to ask you if you had any sort of specific memories or thoughts about, um, yeah, this huge figure. Yeah, I, I don't know if I have specific ones because it, it's just, I mean, that the baseball is just such a background thing, but obviously legendary. It's, it, it, it just it warps your brain to think about, like, this. Is a, he started with the Dodgers when they were in Brooklyn. And like just retired a couple of years ago, like that's it's mind boggling, um, and was just I mean, the NL West went on on MLB TV for a long, long time. I don't do it as much anymore, partly because he's not there, partly because uh, I, I just don't. But like uh, watching Giants games, watching Dodgers games uh, after the Blue Jays game was over, always uh, always a fun time. Dodger Stadium uh, looks great on TV. Um, it's nice to be, you know, in the middle of a. It's you're, it's early April and you're in Toronto and it's still snowing and it's it's dark at night and you can flip on uh, the beautiful backdrop and the sound of Vince Scully and that was, uh, uh, the, you know, just always a pleasure and just always, you know, uh, a fascinating guy to listen to and uh, and and great and you know perfect at at having the right tone for the moment. Um, yeah, uh, you can't. What can you say? What can you? It's just. I mean, there. It's the definition of a legend. It's. Uh, uh, it is. Uh, he 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 led a he led a good and long life, which you love to see. Uh, but uh, yeah, sad to see him go. Yeah, I mean, I, so many clips went around on Twitter over the last few days. The one where the he catch, Dwight Dwight Clark the catch. The catch, the one where he talks about Madison Baumgartner and the rattlesnake, the one where he turns uh, a soccer cheese burrito at bat, which a lot of people listening now will know is not necessarily an exciting event, uh, into a discussion about literal philosophy. For me, the memory is like a very specific. It's 2014, and I was in uh, journalism school, and I moved to a, a really shitty basement apartment, like so shitty that... Uh, like my girlfriend literally would not come there uh, <laughs> level of shitty. And it was my first time living alone ever. And I thought it was very weird just having the lack of noise of just people around. And so the, I would always put on the Dodgers games at night. Cause I'm the type of person who's it's, I have a hard time getting to sleep early. So I generally stay up relatively late. And yes. yeah, when I was living in this horrible basement apartment alone, 
uh, Vin Scully was my company for a lot of those times in 2014, and that's something that I will always remember. I was going to say treasure, but you know, not not a high point necessarily. Uh, but th- <laughs> thanks, Vin, for uh, helping me get through that. And uh, on that dour note, we will end off today, and we will be with you again next week. We have not confirmed our schedule just yet, but we will be with you twice because that has been our pattern to this point, and we appreciate you guys. Uh, tuning in yet again. All right. Thanks a lot, everybody. Talk to you soon.